You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Wasn't that awesome? Man, don't you love seeing all these young families and little ones coming to Kingsway? I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Welcome to all the families and people who are visiting with you, too. So uh, we are in the book of Luke, and last week we left off at Jesus' temptation. And uh, we're going to pick right up today after Jesus' temptation. He's going to be kind of all over the place. And uh, we're going to see that today. And I'm going to do my best to show you a map. It might be helpful for you to go use Google Earth later. So let's go ahead and jump in. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be at verse 14. Here we go. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, there you go, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Okay, real quick, help me out here, like, Little mini applause. How many of you are fans of the TV show The Chosen? The Chosen, yeah? Okay, a few of you, a few of you. You don't have to watch the show. Basically what they're doing is they're taking the, the gospel story of, of Jesus. They follow Luke heavily, and uh, they basically TV, made a TV show about it. So there's a lot of filler. There's a lot of stuff they made up that it's fine. It's not a big deal to me at all. I think it's fantastic. But in season three, episode three, they cover this moment, and they did such a fantastic job. I almost just stopped and said, here, let's just watch the clip, and then I'll teach on it. But it was 10 minutes long, and so I just want to encourage you to go home and watch. You probably should watch more than that, but if you just wanted to watch season three, episode three, you'd get a really good feel for how this would have looked back in the day. So what we notice here in the first few parts is uh, what happens in real time could take days or weeks or months for what happens to Scripture in two verses. You may or may not have noticed, but in the very first verse here that we read, that Jesus is in Capernaum, or Capernaum, some people say, and then next thing you know, he's in Nazareth. Well, if you've been here ever for Christmas or any church at Christmas, you may know that Nazareth is the town where Jesus was born, but that's not the same as Capernaum. So I thought it might be helpful to show you on a map what this looks like, because what they just covered in one verse actually takes three to five days to journey there. So I don't know how well you can make this out, but there's a pink box up here. This is the Sea of Galilee. I was on a boat in the middle of that sea. I've got pictures, but they're irrelevant. It looks like a guy on a lake. Like, he wouldn't, it wouldn't help you at all. Anyway, so you see the Sea of Galilee here. Capernaum, or Capernaum, is on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is down here, kind of inland in the middle here, between the, the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee here. And it's about three to five days journey, depending on how you're traveling, to get from point A to point B. And you may notice, if you can't make this out real well, I told you last week during the wilderness, I said, I'll show you a map next week. Well, out here is really white and yellowy. This is probably where Jesus was wandering in his 40-day wilderness journey, somewhere out here. This is called the land flowing with milk and honey, because you'll notice it's much greener here. Things grow much better here. And I don't have a perfect example of this. The next map I'll show you a little later, I'll be able to show it to you. But this right here kind of represents Israel. This is just a generic, this is Israel right in here. So... We start here in the first verse, we're here three to five days later, but what's going to happen here is referred to what happens back here. 
That'll give you a little bit of context for what we're talking about. Jesus is in two completely separate areas. If you walked, say, 10 to 20 miles a day, and it takes you three to five days to journey that far, you get an idea about how far away it would have been. And there was a road, a Roman road, that kind of came down and unified these areas so you could get from point A to point B. But it also makes sense since people were constantly traveling to do business and things back and forth, how stories that happened in Capernaum could be told down in Nazareth. Now, with that context, let's go back to our story and see what we have from Jesus today, right? Luke 4, verse 17. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So now, in case you didn't get that, he's got these ancient scroll, and you unroll it, and they show this really, really well in, uh, in, in The Chosen, but you got this little thing, and they would mark it. And so Jesus unrolls it, looks specifically for a text in Isaiah so that he can read it in front of the people. Jesus is a traveling teacher, a traveling rabbi. And this was really common when rabbis would travel through towns and they'd show up in a town and that they would be invited to speak for that day. It was kind of like, hey, let's give the pastor a, a day off, right? And so this is basically what Jesus is doing. It's like, hey, let's share God's word with everybody today. So he stands up at a, at a cool, and I saw one of these, got this kind of ancient cool lectern-y thing, and he pulls out the little thing and he marks it. It looks for the text in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 6, 61 verses 1 and 2. It is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Remember that happened at his baptism because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and a recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you were to go read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you would see that it reads exactly like that, except Jesus stopped at what many people would have considered the most important part. Because right where Jesus stops at proclaiming a year of the Lord's favor, the very next verse talks about vengeance from God. But Jesus stopped before he got to the wrath, the judgment, the vengeance of God. And it brings up a great question. Why did Jesus stop there? Well, the people get that too. It says next, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, <clears throat> this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is one of those texts in the Bible where you should assume a lot more was said than we have recorded. This is normal. If you were to take all of the miracles and all of the gospels, you wouldn't really have that much time. You would have, you know, maybe a, a few months worth of time. But if you spread that out over, oh, to get from Capernaum to, down to Nazareth took three to five days, and we aren't told the conversations that happened in those three to five days. And when it says, and Jesus performed many miracles there, that doesn't mean it all happened in an hour. It could have happened over many, many days, and then we're told about a couple of those miracles. And so it's very, very common for the New Testament stories to summarize large portions of things down to one verse or a few verses or a few ideas, and those ideas that are compact with meaning and power. You should assume when Jesus sat down, there probably was some sort of awkward pause, and Jesus went on teaching in some form or fashion, and then he makes this bold statement, today, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your presence. 
First of all, Jesus is making a bold claim about himself. If you don't know anything about the book Isaiah, Isaiah was written roughly 750 years, <clears throat> excuse me, before Jesus came on the earth, give or take. Isaiah makes a number of really bold prophecies, a bunch of them about Jesus specifically, some about Israel, some about what heaven will look like. There's a whole, he's all over the map in terms of his prophecies, but the bold ones about Jesus, he nails with such specificity that it's unbelievable. In fact, read Isaiah 53 sometime where you hear in graphic detail about the future suffering servant, Jesus, who would be crucified. No, it doesn't say the word crucified, but it talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. How do you predict that 750 years earlier before crucifixion was even developed and mastered by the Romans? It's because Isaiah is a prophet and he knows, can see the future as God reveals it to him. So the people of God have been sitting in anticipation, waiting for the one who would come and fulfill these texts. The year of the Lord's favor is such a powerful statement. And that last verse is so powerful because it's the year of Jubilee, but it's spiritual Jubilee. It's the, the 70 times seven weeks prophecy that Daniel prophesied about, that one day the Messiah will come and he will do these amazing things. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm fulfilling these prophecies. And that's a little confusing to everybody because they're looking at Jesus going, but wait a minute. <laughs> we know you. You're that guy. You're the kid we saw trip and stumble and fall in public trying to play, you know, tape soccer or whatever. I doubt they had tape back then or soccer, but whatever the kids, Jewish kids played, right? I don't know. You're that kid. You were that dorky teenager with the acne. Remember that? We had that zit on your nose. You remember that, Jesus? And this becomes a stumbling block. Keep looking. So he rolled the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fast on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Isn't that the carpenter's boy? And I, I remember him. You get it, right? I joked last week, that a guy wrote a book called James here towards the back of the Bible. And James is the half-brother of Jesus. Mary is both Jesus and James's mom. But James's dad is Joseph the carpenter. And Jesus' dad is God our father. And But this, you know, I joke, right? Could you imagine trying to convince your sibling that you're the son of God, right? Yeah, it's not gonna go real well. And I wonder, like, what was it like in Jesus' home? There are non-gospels that are written out there, and you hear about them all the time. Time Magazine used to love to talk about them. The, things like the Gospel of Thomas, which was written hundreds of years after Jesus. And the Gospel of Thomas is what we call a Gnostic gospel. It was not a true account of the life of Jesus. But this fake gospel, I don't know why they call it gospel, this Thomas' this book, it goes in and tries to fill in the gaps. You know, like when Jesus was a little boy and like you say a bird dies and Jesus really loved that bird so he touched it and brought it back to life and things like that. But if things like that were happening in Jesus' youth, this text would make no sense at all. Surely people would have heard and seen and known the stories of Jesus doing crazy awesome things, right? His brother falls or breaks his finger and Jesus goes, I got you, bro. You're right? And it's like people would have seen and known. They wouldn't have been confused. 
How can you be a prophet? How can you be the prophet? How can you be something special? You're Joseph's kid, the carpenter. Like we've seen you build that table you built, it's still crooked in the corner over there. I don't know that that's true, I made that up. Anyway, the whole point is like they are, they're trying to figure out and wrap their heads around. So when it says they were amazed, that's not the same as they loved him or believed in him or trusted in him. You see it when you put these two parts together. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. I mean, he's not talking at all about the day of judgment, the day of wrath. These Romans have done terrible things to us. We want God to get them. We want a Messiah who's gonna be a king, who's gonna overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as this great nation on the planet. And Jesus is going, that's not why I came. I came to help the poor and the blind. I came to set captives free. I came, and people are like, wow. But what about all that other stuff? And are you Joseph's kid? And then Jesus looks at them and he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. You will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did at Capernaum. And now you know why it's important that I showed you that map. Because remember, we started with Jesus was in Capernaum and then all of a sudden he's in Nazareth. And now what Jesus is saying is, see, you've heard some rumors about things I did. You've heard about some miracles that I performed. And you're wondering to yourself, could it be the same Jesus who grew up here is now an adult and he is a prophet of God and he's doing great things? Is that possible? And Jesus is saying, see, you haven't even said it, but I'm reading your minds and I'm reading your thoughts and I know what you're thinking. Physician heal yourself was kind of a, a, a common phrase in the day. It was like, yeah, go ahead. If you're so awesome, show us. You know, it's like, if you're gonna be a doctor, go ahead and doctor yourself, yourself up there, doctor. Like, go ahead, take care of yourself. Then we'll believe that you are fit to do this. Why don't you show us, prove it to us. Put on your big boy pants and show off. Pull out your magic wand, put on your cape, whatever it is, and do it. We've heard some rumors. We haven't seen anything for ourselves. We'll believe if we can see. And Jesus concludes, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And that goes all the way back to Israel's history. Prophets are always looked down on in their hometown. And this is where we find ourselves connecting with the story because it's been hard to connect up to now. Because we're like, okay, this is a cool story, it's a historical thing. But see, here's the thing that we need to latch onto. There is a great danger in loving Jesus' gracious words, but not loving Jesus himself. And this is super popular and super common today. Today, we are living in a world right now in America <clears throat> where there is this uh, disbelief going on. Many of you raised your kids in the faith and they have since walked away. I talk to parents all the time and grandparents all the time and this is their story. For many in America today, there's this generic belief that there's a higher power, a being out there somewhere. And that, you know, generally speaking, all religions are basically the same. Just pick whichever one you want because they're all trying to make us good people. It doesn't matter who you follow, just follow after one of them, take their principles and put them into practice. But Jesus doesn't really give us that option. Not, not now, not ever. Jesus isn't afraid to say that he's exclusive. And that's exactly what he's doing in his hometown. 
He's basically saying to them, you're gonna have a hard time believing in me because you got a little box you wanna put me in. And because I don't fit well in that box, the only way you say you'll get in the box with me, the only way you'll hang out with me, the only way you'll put your trust in me is if I do a little dance, if I show off for you, if I perform some magic trick. It's not really magic, but if I do something miraculous, then you'll believe. But the reality is you're not gonna believe anyway. It won't really matter what I do. And this is where we are, it, not just as a nation, but as a world. We can look at Jesus, we can study history, we can say there is literally no book in the history of the world like the Bible. There is no book that's as trustworthy, has as much evidence and proof why we should put our hope and trust in it. I like to listen and read a lot of things. I listen and read a lot of things. And I was watching some video by Bill Maher the other day, and I'm not promoting Bill Maher by any stretch of the imagination, but he is just spouting off on the Bible, and I'm just getting mad because it's a monologue, not a dialogue. I don't get to sit in the room with Bill and tell him why he's wrong. I don't get to shoot holes in his argument because he's not there to talk to me. He's just made a video that millions and millions of people have watched, and it's full of fallacies and, and ad hoc arguments, if you know what that is, and, it, and just full of holes, and it's so easy if you know what you're talking about to go, that doesn't make any sense, you're wrong. But that's the thing. We live in a world today that is inundated with videos and media and news that is constantly trying to poke a hole in the story and in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, here's the thing. Some of you, it doesn't matter what I've done or how I did it, you're gonna have a hard time trusting me. I had a friend, who, um, a pastor friend, and when I met him, he had a picture on the wall of like his favorite spiritual leaders. And one of the guys he had up was Mahatma Gandhi. And I was like, tell me why, I don't understand. He was like, oh, this guy was amazing. He lived a great life. He did so many great things for the people of India. He sacrificed his own body. And I said, yeah, but he's, he's not a Christian. Help me wrap my head around why you have such honor and respect for him. I get he did great things in the world, but, but why not many of the Christian followers? Like, like Thomas himself, who actually took the gospel in India and died doing that. I said, why, why him and not him? I just help me understand that. And he said, oh, he said, I'm not convinced that Mahatma Gandhi isn't a Christian. I said, really? I said, I've never heard that before. I don't know anything. So over the years, I'm so fascinated by the conversation, I started doing studying. And what I found is Mahatma Gandhi really liked Jesus's teachings. He really liked everything Jesus had to say. He really had a problem with the church. And so, therefore, he could kind of separate Jesus into the people of God who, who don't always reflect Jesus perfectly. I, I'm not talking about other churches, <laughs> not us, clearly. And, and Jesus and his teachings himself. Well, I find this fascinating. It's recently come out that there was a letter that Mahatma Gandhi wrote back and forth between a Christian, and that letter just went up for auction. It went up for sale not too long ago, and there was a clip of that letter that was published. I thought it was super fascinating, and uh, in that letter, I grabbed the quote off there, and I just put two quotes together into one, and it said this. He's writing to a Christian now. Dear friend, I have your letter. I am afraid it is not possible for me to subscribe to the creed you have sent me. The subscriber is made to believe that the highest manifestation of the unseen reality was Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that's, that's a word salad, right? Like, no, none of us talk like this in everyday life, but this is Gandhi, okay? So what Gandhi is basically saying, as he's writing back and forth to this Christian, this Christian apparently is pushing him and challenging him to give his life and his faith to Jesus Christ, and the Gandhi is writing back to him and saying, I just can't buy that Jesus is the highest manifestation of an unseen reality. I just can't get there. He goes on and he says, in spite of all my efforts, I have not been able to feel the truth of that statement. I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. In other words, 
Jesus was a great teacher, but I can't get beyond him being more than a great teacher. I mean, I hope that Jesus and I will be put side by side one day. See, Jesus doesn't allow for that. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of these 300 plus odd prophecies in the Old Testament that point specifically to Messiah. I am him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to God our Father unless we go through Jesus. That comes right, yeah, you can clap for Jesus all day long. So with all due respect to Gandhi, who did great things for the people of India, there's, there's no doubting that. We are not saved by the great things that we do. We are saved by a relationship with God our Father through Jesus Christ. Not only that, but um, there's another famous um, scholar, man, Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt... But those eyes and those cheeks. Brad Pitt grew up in a Christian home. And I know, I know nothing about the home Brad Pitt grew up in, right? I mean, I don't know his parents. I don't know if they were real Christians or not. I just know that Brad has talked many times about the faith that he grew up in. And I just recently read an article about Brad. And Brad was just trying to work out his faith. And he said this, again, I took kind of two parts from an article and smashed them together into one quote for you, but these are both from his words. He said, religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there's something bigger than you. And it is going to be all right in the end. And he goes on, he says, what's important to me is that I've defined my beliefs and lived according to them and not betrayed them. One of those is my belief in family. I still have faith in that. Where we are right now, and I think maybe some of you could feel this way, is we like the teachings of Jesus. We like that religion is this crutch, so to speak, that I can lean on when I'm having a bad day or a bad season. Or if I get really desperate, I know I could show up and, and God will give me something that I need. Then I go back to my life and do my thing. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came that we would completely reorient our lives around him and his teachings that everything he says would confront everything that we are. It would flip our world upside down. I don't know about you. I am offended on a regular basis by Jesus' teachings because he keeps confronting my selfish pride and my selfish time. He confronts me at the core of the sin that is still in me, and then he calls me and draws me and gives me the spirit of God to give me the power and the courage and the fuel to become the person that he wants me to be. So why Jesus goes on and he gives this, this illustration. There's two parts to this illustration. So Luke 24, 25, 26 says this. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. I'll unpack this in just a minute. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, I made a mistake in my notes. I forgot to put Luke 4.27 in there because the very next thing that Jesus says, I'll just summarize it for you, you can read it for yourself, is Jesus says, also, it's like in the days of Elisha when, when Naaman was sent to Elisha and he was told to go wash in the water and he was uh, healed of his leprosy because of his faith. 
Now, let me unpack both those stories for you. Let me show them to you in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what Jesus is up to. First, here's our map again. So this time we're gonna highlight some things, ready? So here's our map. Here is this time we took a zoom out. You can really see the desert wasteland over here now. And here is, this is uh, Capernaum. Here is Nazareth. So you got our bearings, Sea of Galilee, okay? So up here is what's called Sidon. And Sidon is the area where this lady, Zarephath, was from. And over here somewhere, we don't know exactly where, up here where it says Damascus, is where this guy named Naaman was from. And the reason that's important, and I'm drawing just generically here, this is Israel here. So if this is Israel here, we are talking about two areas that are outside of Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is trying to say, I have come to the people of God. I have literally come to my own hometown and you guys won't believe. You've had this book for thousands of years and you still won't believe. You won't trust. And yet God is going to draw people and call them to himself who don't have a foundation. They don't have a history, but he's going to effectively reach them. Now, here's the way that he says that. When he gives this first illustration, now you can take the map down, but he gives this first illustration about a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. What's happening in the story is, you remember the prophet Elijah? He is broken for the people of God being so distant from God, and so he prays that it would stop raining, and for three and a half years, it stops raining. In the middle of that, it gets so bad, you can imagine like year one, right? Everybody's just like on, on, you know, control the water, don't water the grass too much, right? And year two, people are really trying to figure out how they're gonna survive. By year three, it's really desperate. Somewhere in that process, uh, Elijah is, is next to a brook and God is feeding him and taking care of him next to this brook and the brook dries up. And we see that in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe, there we go, yep. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So God tells the prophet Elijah, I want you to leave Israel because these people are faithless. These people will not trust. I want you to go out of Israel and go to a widow there. Now, this is really crazy powerful because God loves widows. God cares for them. God could have met the need of any widow in Israel who would have put her trust in him, but apparently there weren't any. So God sends Elijah to this widow in Zarephath, and she's got a little boy. And so when they run into each other, they have this conversation. Next thing she says, as surely as the Lord, notice this, verse 12, as sure as the Lord, your God lives. Notice that's not really her faith yet. There's a small seedling of faith there. As sure as the Lord, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar, a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You thought you were having a bad day. She is so desperate. She had probably hasn't even told her son. So Elijah standing there to have this moment of confrontation. God has sent him to her, and, and she's like, I can't feed you. I'm literally gathering this right now to go home and make our last meal and die. I'm sorry. But God has already prompted this widow. Now, maybe the widow doesn't know if he's the one, and 
Maybe he's trying to figure out if she's the one. There, you know, it's like this weird thing going on, like, hey, are you him? Are you her? I don't know. But all of a sudden, Elijah said to her, verse 13, Elijah said to her, I, I, don't be afraid. Just go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she does. She goes in, she makes first one for Elijah, that should have been all there was, and then she makes another one for her and her son, and then the next day, 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 and I wondered if she got to see it. I've always wondered. Like, as she reached in to scoop it out, did she watch it go, whoop, you know, like, did it just fill back in? And it had to have a sound effect. If it was gonna do it, there had to be some cheesy sound effect. Or was it just that she did it, and she put the lid on, she's like, okay, we'll see, and she came back the next day, like, maybe this is the last one, and there it was again, and she did it again. I don't know. I don't know. As the story would unfold, she didn't quite have faith yet, but over some other things that happen in her story, she gets faith. One of them is her son dies and Elijah prays and God brings him back to life and she's like, and now I believe. But there's this journey of faith, right? There's this journey. But why did God have to send Elijah outside of Israel? Because there wasn't any faith in Israel. And that's exactly what the next story is about, the one about Naaman. Naaman is a great ruler for the enemy. In fact, he has conquered Israel multiple times. In fact, not only that, but in one of their raids, they grabbed a young girl and brought her back and she becomes a servant in Naaman's house. And that alone in our days, like that is evil and terrible. It was very common in that day to do that. This was not an inappropriate relationship. This was not about things that you might think up in our day that if somebody takes a little kid, they're probably gonna do to them. This is not that. But she did become a servant in Naaman's house. But this is what's super cool. That young teen girl, she had faith. She knew there was a prophet. The prophet now is not Elijah, it's Elisha. Elisha followed Elijah. He asked for a double portion of the spirit that God gave Elijah. And if you count them, he did exactly twice the amount of miracles that Elijah did. And in this particular story, she knew there was a prophet in Israel. So when her uh, now owner or whatever, I don't know what to call him, Naaman, he becomes inflicted with a terrible leprosy. We don't know exactly which kind. Leprosy in the Old Testament can mean a variety of skin diseases, but it's a bad deal. And he's the commander of the army and he has an important deal. So the king of that area sends Naaman out and says, hey, let's go to the king of Israel and see if he can connect you over to the prophet. So when Naaman shows up with, with the king's guard and, and all these resources to basically buy a favor from Elisha, when he gets there, the king of Israel is terrified. It's like, oh, I don't have the ability to do anything. I can't make the prophet do anything. This is all a setup. You're gonna kill me. So finally, Naaman and his guys, they go over to Elisha's house. And when they get there, Elisha won't even come out and talk to him. Elisha just says to his servant who comes out and says to Naaman, I want you to go over and wash in the water. Not your waters. I want you to go and wash in these waters, these Israelite waters. And Naaman's livid. I came all this way. I brought all these resources and you won't even come out and look me in the face. You won't even come out and talk to me. How dare you? Do you know who I am? And he's angry. He's going home angry. He's like, oh, oh, we'll see. And Naaman's servant, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, he went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, <laughs> would you not have done it? How much more then when, when he tells you just wash and be cleansed? I love the servant's approach of humility and respect. He's like, just what do you got to lose? We're here, my man. Like, just do it. What if he's right? 
So he went down and he dipped himself. Notice which river he dipped himself in? The Jordan. If you weren't here, Jesus just was baptized in the Jordan. The Jordan is the river the Israelites had to cross from the wilderness into the promised land. This, this river is so important because it signifies the moving from death to life over and over and over again. And now he has to get in and dip seven times in the Jordan as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And I've wondered to myself, did Naaman the first time go, one, <laughs> two, three. When he got to number six, did he go, this is a waste of time. Why am I doing this? But the seventh time, oh, that seventh time, he was clean. And it says in verse 15, then Naaman and his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and said, now I know that there's a God in all the world. There is no God, sorry, in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. See, Jesus uses these two stories to say to the people in his hometown, you won't believe, but there are people all over the world, they're not gonna see a thing and they're gonna believe. Notice Naaman came to faith <laughs> before he took an action step that then followed through with God. Same thing with the widow. Same thing with Abraham. See, this is what God asks over and over and over again. Do you trust me enough to take a step? You don't have to know everything. You don't have to understand everything. You just have to take the next step. Will you do that? And the people in his hometown say, if you show us something first, if you give us the bread before we have to go sacrifice our last meal, then I'll believe you. If you'll rid me of my leprosy before I have to go bathe in the Jordan, then I'll believe you. Jesus says, that's not faith. That's not faith. Faith requires more than mere fascination. Faith requires action. Faith requires faith. It wouldn't be faith if I never had to put it to the test. And Jesus doesn't give us some other option to choose apart from him. And see, I know some of you need to hear this today because you're sitting on the fence of faith. You're dating God, but you're wondering like, I don't know, maybe I'll see something. Maybe I'll experience something. Maybe I'll hear something. It'll finally push me over the edge and I'll finally believe. Here's the thing. Take the step of faith and then watch what God does. If you sit and wait for God to do something like you've never seen, you may never see it. With that, I wanna read you one last quote by a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was wrestling with in his day, which was only a handful of decades ago. And he says this powerful thing. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying that the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He either would be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend So here's what I want to do. I want to send you into a time of communion with Jesus, who is God, not just a great moral teacher. And I want to invite you into the story that Jesus is writing in our lives. And I want you to just go ahead and pull out that communion cup. And I want you to take this cup And I want you to draw into his presence. And listen, if you're already a Christian, I want you to reaffirm your faith in him. Let us not fall into the trap of the Nazarites. Those people who watched Jesus as a boy, but they couldn't trust him as as an adult. And if there's any part of you that's struggling in faith, I just want you to confess that to him and trust that his grace is sufficient for you. But don't be afraid to lay that out there right now as you draw into his presence. God, I'm struggling to believe this. God, I'm struggling to trust you with that. Just put that out there. If you're in a great place in your faith with Jesus, just thank him and pray for someone else in their faith. If you are just checking out Jesus and you don't know what to do with him, in just a moment, I'm gonna come and tell you, but I want you to take this communion time to just prepare your heart to be challenged to hear from the Lord. So just take this time and say, God, would you just come and speak to me right now? Everybody else in here seems to know what's going on. I don't know what's going on, but I'm hearing you and you're saying something. Let me start a prayer and I'll hand it to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and your faithfulness to us. And I just pray, God, right now, would you meet us in this communion moment that we would commune with you, the Almighty. And God, let us not be like the people of Jesus' hometown. You couldn't even do miracles in your hometown because of their lack of faith. Oh, God, don't let us be a people who just stand amazed at you. God, let us be a people who love you, who surrender ourselves to you who walk with you and trust you. So God, hear our prayers now in Jesus' name.